verses 1 through 18. (coughs) We have the conclusion of this episode. Peter and Cornelius. Here's the third and final sermon. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Hear God's word. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, And it came to me when I observed it intently and considered, I saw uh, four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered uh, the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of the apostle uh, or or of the man Luke, uh, recounted uh, the, the, the life of the apostle Peter, and this other man Cornelius, and so many others, those in Caesarea, those in Jerusalem. God, it's amazing to see the seeds being planted. And the harvest that even today is being gathered. We ask you that now through the preaching of the word, new light might be shed upon this text and that we might take it to heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is now the conclusion to this extended narrative about Cornelius. And about Peter, really, I think we see it's as much about Peter, if not more about Peter, than it is about Cornelius. But the Lord promised Cornelius salvation uh, and his household, and they all experienced it at the preaching of, of Peter. Again, we notice its pivotal significance. How much time Luke stays with this? This is now the third sermon on uh, this, this, this greater narrative. It, it, Luke is, is taking his time with it. He, he did the same with Pentecost. We could say the first Pentecost in Jerusalem. He stayed in Jerusalem a while. It wasn't just Acts 2, but for quite some time, he told us what happened as a result. And so here he stays with Peter a while, 
seeing how God brought this same gift that he gave to the Jews in Jerusalem now to the Gentiles. And we see here the last obstacle was merely that he bring word back to the saints in Jerusalem, tying these two ideas together, and deal with any lingering doubts of which there were some. For we read that, the, uh, that this was objectionable to those of the circumcision, and so they contended with Peter in Jerusalem. And though sadly we see they would later prevail with Peter in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me read that for context. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Well, he did not withstand them there, but here he does. Men of the same spirit, men. Of the same party. They prevailed with him in Antioch. I'm saying they didn't prevail with him. In an earlier date in Jerusalem. Nor did they prevail with Peter. Later on in Acts chapter 15. In Jerusalem once again. So here in chapter 11. He not only uh, explained what happened. Verses 4 through 17. That's merely uh, uh, Peter recounting. uh, What we've already read. But he also had the support of the six witnesses. And so, too, when the same question uh, more or less arose again in Acts chapter 15, Peter was able to make the same point, even as we read a little earlier in verse 11 of chapter 15. But we believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. God is no longer making the old distinctions between the Jews and the Gentile. The only distinction anymore that matters is the distinction that grace makes. By faith. Well, the question perhaps we want to know is who were these people? The opponents of Peter, those who did not succeed these two times, Acts chapter 11 and 15, but did succeed in Antioch. They are called in chapter 11, verse 2, those of the circumcision. In chapter 15, uh, verse 1, they are described like this. Certain men came down from Judea and taught unless... You are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. So they also said in verse five, it is necessary to be uh, to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. They were certain men from James in Galatians chapter two, verse 12. The question which the commentators ask and which we ask, and I don't know if we can satisfactorily answer is, were they the same party? Were they the same people? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps. I don't know. But surely they were of the same spirit in all three places, Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Antioch. It was the same objection. It was, in essence, could we eat at the same table? Could we occupy the same pew? Could we be in the same church together? That was always the thing that they were disputing. They were clinging to Moses when one greater than Moses had come. The whole spirit of their surprise and distrust of what Peter did was stated in verse 3 when they say, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went into Cornelius' home and you shared a meal with them. It's strange to say it wasn't so much the fact that he preached to them, but that he shared a meal with them, that they had fellowship together. 
The idea was the old distinctions remain, Jew and Gentile. And those distinctions were of saving importance. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Unless a man does this, he cannot be saved. And even beyond that, you see how this is all tied together. They were not only of salvific importance, but ecclesial importance. Because it was not just a question of who could be saved, but who could be in the church. And what the church was to look like. What kinds of people uh, composed the church? And what kind of fellowship would Jews and Gentiles enjoy now in the church? That's what I mean when I say it was ecclesiastical. This had implications for the church. The church is, it's a gathering of people. And there is the obvious question of who has a place in the church. And what determines who does? On this point, the two sides were squarely at odds. One said, observe Moses. Observe the old distinctions, which included uh, the old food laws, the purity laws. Gentiles were excluded by definition. The other side, Peter said, God has accepted them by faith. Who are we to exclude them? That was the essence of the debate. And it was one, let me remind you, that continued with the church for some time. In many ways, that's the tragedy of the New Testament. And that's the tragedy of the New Covenant Church. It's that things were not so easily settled here. Or I could say these battles were not so easily won, not in the life of the New Testament church, not even in the life of Peter. And if you study the long history of the church, you find that this old error is one that prevails to this day. Again, battles not so easily won, battles that we're constantly fighting. It's the, the old spirit of the Pharisee, the old spirit of legalism. We see, let me state again, how this spirit can be uh, put down in a man and then rise up again, as it did in Peter. How easily we fall back into the former position. I'm not suggesting that the battle is fought on exactly the same terms. I realize that we're not fighting over Jews and Gentiles anymore, but I'm saying that the same spirit that animated these men is very much alive and well today, even as it was in the early church. They didn't just have this little council in Acts chapter 11, and and they were all agreed, and that was the end of it. No, far from it. Here, this old spirit of legalism, I'm saying, has never left the church. And we, like Peter here, always have to battle against it. Always. We have to battle against, we have to strive against the legalist. Even if the legalist is myself. And if my brother, like Paul, tells me I've become the legalist, I might need to listen. Or maybe I'm like Paul and I find my brother's become a legalist. Well, I might need to oppose him to his face. So often, we try to put the yoke, to use Peter's language from Acts chapter 15, the yoke of the old covenant back on the necks of those who would call themselves Christians or else we suspect their claim to be in Christ. And to that, Peter says, again, quoting Acts chapter 15, you could not keep it, nor the fathers. Why do you think they can when we could not No, the gospel and the fellowship it produces really is just a matter of faith in Jesus Again, chapter 15, verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. But having said that much, let me make two observations, uh, or maybe three, it turns out. (laughs) Three observations about this text. And the first is, Uh, These are familiar points, but that's just the nature of preaching acts. 
The first is the way the gospel changes us. It had changed Saul. And now it had changed Cornelius. And even more surprisingly, it had changed Peter. And by him, it was beginning to change the disciples in Jerusalem, those who were of the circumcision. They were beginning, we read, to let go of their old way of thinking. They were beginning to embrace the new ways of the gospel. They were throwing away the old wineskins and were beginning to put the new wine of the gospel into new wineskins. That's what we see the church actively doing here. Practically, it worked out like this. Saul, who was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, became he who preached Christ, that he is the son of God. Or Peter, again, the point being the way the gospel changes us. Peter, who said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean, became he who preached the vision to others and lived by its message. It changed him. You see, Peter's sermon or whatever you want to call it here to the saints in Jerusalem was his testimony. He's saying, do you see how the grace of God changed me? It gave me a new outlook on the church. It gave me a new outlook on others. It gave me a new outlook on the reach of the gospel. He was, we could say, in a sense, a different man as a result. I'm not saying he was born again. He already was born again, but he was changed. Everything about him changed. His outlook, his way of life. Now he was at last enjoying the fruits of the gospel. He saw the gospel. It's surprising to say this, but I think we have to say this. He saw the gospel as a a way of salvation for all. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you say, now, wait a second. Didn't Peter say that at the Pentecost sermon? He said these very words, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Quoting uh, the prophet Joel, I think it was. He had said those very words to the Jews and yet. Do you see that even Peter himself did not realize what he was saying? But the wonder of what we read here and the wonder of what he's telling these men, both here in Acts 11 and Acts 15, is, well, now I think I'm I'm beginning to get it. I think I, I really understand that the gospel really is for everyone and that I'm really supposed to preach it to everyone and that all those who call upon the name of the Lord, I'm supposed to call my brothers and sisters. Yes, now the gospel had really changed him. This is something the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 10. We'll have ample opportunity to consider it in sermons to come. We've been considering it. The truth that the gospel is for everyone. It's to be preached to all. Uh, John Preston, the Puritan, famously put it like this, citing Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go and preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. That is, he says, go and tell every man without exception, that here is good news for him. Christ is dead for him. And if he will take him and accept of his righteousness, he shall save him. Well, look at Peter in Cornelius' home, saying this very thing in chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 34. I perceive in truth God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. And on and on he goes. And he ends by saying, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. 
Christ is offered to all. Peter realized, even to you, even to Gentiles, even uh, to Cornelius and his household, even to us here in Tallahassee, even to me. And whoever believes will be saved. He will be accepted. He will receive the gift of forgiveness. He will and ought to be baptized and enjoy a place in the church where there is no distinction. Look at Peter here in Jerusalem, a man who is utterly changed by this message. Now persuading others of the same. You see, even now they were changed too. Not just Peter, but those in Jerusalem. They who formerly protested at this very thing, we read. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Yes, it had changed them as well. And the whole practice and face of, this, of, uh, of the church changed as a result. Oh, here the mystery is on full display, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as has been now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promises in Christ through the gospel. Here at last, the church assuming her true form, the Gentiles being grafted in according to grace into the Israel of God. Yes, that's the difference the gospel makes. It makes room for Gentiles when formerly it was Jews only. It's the same gospel for all, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans, to any and all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Or I could put it like this, speaking of the difference the gospel makes or the way it changes us. What I'm describing is stated well by Peter in verse 17. He says, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? That I could withstand him or, or withstand God. You see, he realized. And here was his testimony to the saints in Jerusalem. If that's what the gospel is, it is to be freely offered to all. And any and all who call upon Jesus will be saved and accepted and received into the church. If that's really what God was doing, who was Peter to oppose God? You see, that's what he saw now. That's what he realized he realized there's nothing more foolish than this, to oppose God, to become aware of his plan for humanity and then to say, I'm against that. That's something I don't want. Well, you say that's obviously foolish. I would never do that. But, well, we already saw Peter doing that. We see Jonah doing that. If we're fair, if we're honest, we realize that so often we're doing that. We're, we're setting our ideas against God. We're aware of his purposes, which he states so clearly in his word and, and secretly in the heart or perhaps verbally with the mouth. Or, or we look at our lives and we realize I'm against God. I'm against what he's doing. I don't want what he wants. And the thing that the gospel does, sometimes gradually, sometimes all at once, is it shows us the futility of that. It shows us the folly of our own ways and it brings us to a point of utter submission. We recognize our creatureliness. We say, I'm but a worm. Who am I to oppose God? And by the way, why would I ever want to? I realize now that what I was doing was the most grievous thing of all. I was opposing God. I will do so no longer. 
And it's not until the gospel has done that for you that it's really changed you. But I would also notice as a second point, the gospel way of salvation, much as we've seen in Romans chapter 10. How is it that a man is saved? Well, as it turns out, this is a very useful uh, illustration or demonstration of the way of salvation. As it turns out, and this is the point we need to see, it's the same way of salvation for Jews and for Gentiles. But what is salvation? And I'm talking about the application of salvation, not the accomplishment. How is it that a man is changed? How is it that he experiences this wonderful, uh, this wonderful gift of salvation by which his whole life is revolutionized? Well, you see how this fits in with what I preached in the morning. It's a very eloquent statement of salvation. Let me just read verses uh, 16 through 18. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. It's just amazing to see how much of the ordo salutis is in those three verses. And let me let me help you to see it. That's the order of salvation. And we could look at two vantage points here. We could look at that of God himself and then that of man, the God who saves and man who is saved. The first is that of God. And the first thing we see is that from God's standpoint, salvation includes election. That's what we've seen so well, so extensively already in Romans chapter nine. Well, we see it here. In other words, here's the question from the standpoint of the Jew and the Gentile. Who has a place in the church? Who's the one who's saved? Well, what determines whether a man is saved and who is saved? Not that he is a Jew or a Greek, not his nationality, but only this. Here's the answer of the text. Only those whom the Lord grants repentance. You see, it's his initiative. It's his doing. And they only no one else. Well, there's another aspect, and it's that of providence. So we looked in eternity. Now we look in time. And, and, and I think in many ways, this is the most wonderful lesson of these, these uh, three chapters of Acts. It's the hand of providence moving about, uh, seeing to the, salvation, uh, to the salvation of the Gentiles. The Lord directing all things well, so that those whose names were written in the book of life might be brought into the church. They might be saved. Another thing we see is that salvation is a gift. Peter says, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed, salvation is a gift. It's something that God gives to man undeserving. There's another word for this, and it's the word grace. If you want to know the closest synonym to, to grace, it's the word gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you deserve. It's not something that God looks upon man and he says, I want to save that man. He's such a good fellow. No, salvation is something man doesn't deserve and that God graciously gives as a free gift. That's what the gospel is. That's what salvation is. And if it's a gift from the standpoint of God, that means that he can give it to anyone he pleases. Next to that is the preaching. 
that also belongs on the side of God. We see how instrumental the preaching of the word of God is in the salvation of men. It is God's word to man. It's his way of salvation made clear by which faith becomes possible. Peter told them the words and on on hearing with faith they were saved. But lastly, lastly, there was the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Peter preached to them, so the spirit fell on them and they were saved. And the sense we get here is very clear that it wasn't Peter who produced this, nor was it they who produced this. But it was it was God sovereignly administering and pouring out his spirit upon the church in his own way and in his own timing. Not not after the sermon, you see, but during the sermon. And if you if you read any of the accounts of the first great awakening, for instance, you will you will read accounts of this very thing happening. The spirit being poured out during the sermon. It's the work of God. It simply fell down from heaven, the gift of the spirit. And so striking was this. That it reminded Peter of what Jesus had said to him. Then I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said John indeed baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Upon the Gentiles. As the gift of God. But then we see on the side of man. What happens when the spirit of God falls on man. On hearing the gospel. Well again several things. We see at least that the soul of man is devoid of any saving blessing until the spirit of God comes upon him. His name may be written in the book of life. He may be elect. But until salvation is applied to his soul, until he's baptized with the Holy Spirit, he is yet to be saved. I spoke of this last week in the confession reading. We do not believe the doctrine of eternal justification. No, we say salvation has been accomplished. It's been foreordained, but it has to be applied to the soul of man. How is it applied when the spirit is poured out, when a man is baptized with the Holy Spirit? There, the purpose and the plan of God for the elect is being realized in time there. And then the man is saved. What is salvation? Salvation is this. Christ in you. The Holy Spirit in you. And so he becomes the source of every every saving blessing in Christ. What does he produce in the soul of man? Well, the first thing is faith. He produces faith in our hearts, Peter says. When we believed. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith. We hear the message preached and we believe. But how did such stony hearts ever become hearts of flesh, hearts of faith? The answer is only by the Holy Spirit, not by anything we've done, not by anything that we wanted or decided to do, but solely by the Spirit being poured out on us. This is how Peter puts it later on in Acts chapter 15. So God, who knows the heart, Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. How did he make their hearts pure? How did he give them faith? By giving them the Holy Spirit. And as they believed, so they were saved. Connected with that is repentance. Verse 18. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. What is repentance? Well, 
To use the language of Edward Fisher in the Mayor of Modern Divinity, it is a life which is answerable to the profession. A man who believes and whose life is answerable to his faith. He confesses Christ not only with his mouth, but with his life. He's had a change of heart. So to a change of life and outlook. Really, everything about the man changes. That was the first point I made. The, the, the difference the gospel makes or, or the way it changes us. That's repentance. It's a new outlook, a new way of life, a new person. The Apostle Paul calls believers a new man in Christ, a new creation. That's what God grants to the soul when he pours his spirit into our hearts. And so he forgives us of our sins, as Peter says in verse 43 of chapter 10. Uh, to him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Well, we could say that something God does, and I grant that. But why do I place that on the side of man? Well, because I'm saying that when a man is saved, this becomes for him a tangible experience. It's something concrete. It's something he knows. He not only hears about forgiveness, but he experiences it. It's something like Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is something that we know. It's a tangible blessing, a conscious experience. The man who's forgiven and who knows it. The man who's rejoicing in it. We become aware when we are saved that in Christ, God forgives us. He holds our sins against us no more. That is a wonderful blessing, a wonderful experience of the new man. In fact, I would say it's the most wonderful experience that any man could ever have. There he stands in the courtroom. He's been found guilty. He knows it. Even he doesn't deny it. And yet the judge says, not guilty, acquitted. How can a man hear those words and not rejoice? You see how salvation works on the side of man. But even beyond that, we see how right it is. And this is the final point, at least with respect to this point, that he should come into the church and join with other Christians. A man who is saved now comes into the church again and again. We see that's the emphasis. What is to prevent these people from being baptized, from being one with us? You see, that was the scandal here. Could they really be one with us? Yes, they could, Peter said, for they were saved in exactly the same way. And the outworking of that meant that they should be here with us. And, and what, after all, were they doing there in the church? You see, that's another thing Luke wants us to tell us, not just what does the church or who does the church consist of? As it turns out, Jews and Gentiles, it was a scandal then. It's a scandal no more. At least I don't think it is. The church is composed of Christians. But what, what were the Christians doing in the church? Well, do you see in part the answer here? They were praising God. They were beholding his awesome works of salvation. And they were giving him the glory. Not man, but God. And they were still telling others, this is the way to be saved. And they were saying, if we enjoyed this gift, for that is what salvation is. Others might enjoy it as well, along with us. And it's our heart's desire that they may. You see, they were praising God for what he had done, but they were still looking for him to do something further. The door had been opened wide for people to come in. And as they came in, they rejoiced. But as the door had been opened, they looked for more to come. And so that leads me to a last point, and that is a less, uh, lessons for Gentiles. That is, for us. We are Gentiles. The door has been opened. We have come in. We ought to reflect upon that. We find 
that the Apostle Paul, uh, so often as his ministry was to the Gentiles, was calling upon them to reflect upon that. And what's the lesson? Well, obviously, I still have what Paul says in Romans in mind here when I say, I wonder if we Gentiles are sometimes given to the same error as the Jews in those days. In those days. Is there any inclination, I ask you, to become proud? To think God has saved us, he will not save others. We are in the favored position. Rather than seeing how awesome and how huge grace is. And as a result, eagerly expecting others to be saved along with us. Do we ever sometimes think we're the only ones who will ever be saved? No one else. You see, that was the error of the Jews. I'm saying it's possible that can become the error of the Gentiles. I know it can because Paul himself rebukes it explicitly in the book of Romans. Well, let me put it to you like this in terms of this question. As we are in the church found praising God, I wonder if we're doing, if we're doing so for the same reason as they were here. In other words, I'm asking this question. Are we rejoicing only that we are saved or are we looking with eagerness for the salvation of others do you understand what i'm saying this is what the apostle says in romans chapter 11 verses 19 through 24 you will say then branches were broken off that i might be grafted in well said because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith do not be haughty but fear For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? You see, once I realize that I have no standing in the church, I have no standing here but for God. I stand here by his grace, but for him I would immediately fall. I might ask, what of others? Is he the God of the Gentiles only? Or is he the God of the Jews also? What is to prevent him from saving others? What is to prevent him from grafting back in the Jews by the same grace? Or anyone at all of his own choosing for that matter? You see, the positions have been reversed. The Jews are out, the Gentiles are in, but God is the same. And that's what we always have to remember. And because he's the same, he's able to save anyone. So don't be proud, but fear. That's the message for Gentiles. That's the lesson for Gentiles. Indeed, if we think in terms of the the Jews here in Jerusalem, I would say, let your heart become silent whenever it begins to question whether any might be saved. And rather glorify him whenever he is pleased to save Anyone at all. The point is. Salvation is all of God. That is always the point we must see and praise him for. It's God who gives the gift. Verse 17. God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed. 
It's God who grants repentance. Verse 18. They glorified God saying. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles. Repentance to life. Salvation is his doing not man's. And so I say along with the saints in Jerusalem in those days. Let us glorify and praise him for it. Amen. And let us do so now as we stand together and sing hymn 426. And please stand hymn 426.